Hi there, welcome. You have now entered the NLP Zone, the podcast show where we talk about natural language processing and its two components, natural language understanding and natural language generation, right through to hearing firsthand from our guests about some of the most interesting applications of NLP and their companies are using right now. Hi guys, I'm Jordan Luxford, founder of Montford. Welcome to the NLP Zone. Today I'm speaking with two great guests, Yasin Georgiakopoulos, co-founder and chief product officer of Deep Neuron Lab, and Johannes Forster, lead data scientist at KPMG. If you didn't know, Deep Neuron Lab are focused on NLU, specializing in document processing in the domain of financial reports. And KPMG is a global organization with over 200,000 professionals delivering value in over 153 countries, specializing in multiple areas such as finance, accounting, medical, and so on. Today, we'll be discussing several topics, the importance of intelligent document processing and why it's crucial for enterprises, dealing with uncertainty of models in a certain domain, AI explainability and governance, and deep text mining platforms. And a topic that we all want to talk about to finish off will be the hiring of data scientists and machine learning engineers in today's world. So how are we both doing? Pretty good. Good That's pretty good. Thank you. So Yarsen, if you could give me an introduction and an overview of your background and what got you into natural language processing, that would be great to kick off the show. Happy to. So maybe start off with the academical background. Uh, I studied industrial engineering with a computer science as a major and statistics. So naturally, the combination of computer science and statistics led me to the world of data and data engineering. Started off in the e-commerce sector, um, basically data warehousing and managing big data there. And from that, I actually started to gain value out of the data by building machine learning applications and building the little data science team there. And I got into the NLP world actually through the, with Deep Neural Lab basically by working on document processing and trying to extract data from documents. And mm -hmm. natural language processing is one part that you need to actually structure data in, in documents which where they are unstructured. So that's basically how I came into this. And Johannes, if you could do the same. Sure. So yeah, also from my academic background, so my first contact to AI in general was about uh, recommender systems. So already around 10 years ago, so before the new rise of AI came up. Uh, but then at my first uh, company I worked for, IBM, I was responsible for introducing the IBM Watson system in Europe. And as IBM Watson was from the beginning on specialized in natural language processing, and of course you need to adapt all these uh, cool stuff IBM has done in the United States for the English language uh, to the German language. We needed uh, professionals here in Germany with uh, German language skills and also uh, computational linguistic skills um, to yeah bring the system up to uh, to speed and uh, to bring it to use for domain experts in different areas. Amazing, appreciate that, Johannes. Okay, so Yasin, so with Deep Neuron Lab, um, I've been doing a little bit of research into the company. Are you about are you about 15 people right now? Is that correct? Judging by mm -hmm. LinkedIn? Not yet 15. 
more like 13. There are some interns coming in and out, but close to it, yeah. So you're, a, as I read from LinkedIn, you're a data sourcing company that utilizes artificial intelligence to produce high quality financial data. So could yes. you t dabble into a little bit about, you know, why you started Deep Neuron Lab and, and what they do specifically? Yes. So the passion or the motivation from day one was to solve hard problems with machine learning. So uh, the, the, that was the main focus. And we had a pretty good connection uh, to the financial industry. And the reason um, that we started is that we saw a lot of problems that came to us where it was like, hey, can we use machine learning? Can you use AI in these type of problems? And most of them were actually in the document processing domain. Um, and yes, that's how we jumped into it. We started solving individual problems in the beginning, always in the lookout for like finding recurring problems that we can turn into products, right? Um, and that mm -hmm. problems came to us about like two years ago with a problem of extracting financial data um, out of documents. So we specialized not only in document processing, which was the first thing, like touching also contracts, but we specialized more on one type of financial document, which is um, actually the financial reports. Um, and based on that, build two products out of it right now. One is focusing on the financial core, which is like a balance sheet, the income statement, and the, um, uh, and the cash flow statement. And the second mm -hmm. type of document we're focusing is the annex, which is actually a part of the financial report. And to sub sum it up, maybe closed our seed, running, uh, seed funding round beginning of the year. Um, yeah. And since then, been able to grow our team and continue to work on the products. Amazing. And how has it been for you guys as a relatively new startup-like company? How has it been for you during the, the COVID period? It hasn't been as, um, as, as crucial or as hard as it could be probably for other sectors since we're a lot in the development part of the products, right? And the co-developing with customers. So it didn't hurt us in that way directly, but obviously it was challenging from every other perspective, if you want, from the team working from home, all these topics, which I think if we dive into, we'll be talking for, for an hour on its own. <laughs> but it was definitely a challenging, but, but also we, we came out stronger from it. So actually very, very happy about that. Yeah, I mean, it's been a very challenging time for everyone. And if I talk about from my firsthand experience with, you know, the vast clientele that I have, um, I've felt that if if companies are not willing to adapt to the times that we're in now and what I mean by that is of course having the ability to work from home or hybrid remote as I've seen the most optimal choice you know being able to do you know do both um, at any given time has served clients so well especially in the sense that um, with IT I feel like you can do that as long as you can get your job done it doesn't really matter where you are and as long as the task is done and then and still producing the same results then it doesn't really matter so it's good good to hear that you've been adapting to that and it hasn't really been much of an issue so appreciate that um, and yourself Johannes um, completely other end of the spectrum obviously KPMG are a huge company international worldwide um, I know that you had seven years before at IBM. Why did you join KPMG? And uh, what are you working on specifically in your area at KPMG? Um, so, well, I think that there are two major aspects uh, which made me basically change from IBM to KPMG. So in the beginning, it was um, also in the beginning of this new wave of AI, uh, it was 
cool to be at the uh, at a company which has a huge research uh, uh, department where you are really at the forefront uh, of these technologies in NLP in machine learning. Um, but then in the in the later years, I would say that um, open, the open source community actually overtook all the the big companies, the big technologies uh, technology companies there, and uh, it felt a bit that you are. Um, yeah, to narrow it down into just using the IBM software and the IBM technology. So this was going to a company which is more focused on on consulting, uh, uh, but which are uh, or who are uh, yeah technology agnostic is way better. And the other as aspect is that KPMG is also closer to the actual business users. So with IBM, you first go to the IT department. Uh, and then together you search for the actual clients and, and the, the users who have uh, uh, who have the problem actually with documents, for example. Mm -hmm. um, from KPMG perspective, we are directly working with the um, with with domain experts who have problem with um, scrolling through a lot of documents, uh, which but who also have the knowledge um, inside of these documents. So, for example, you have um, accounting experts, you have um, actuaries from from insurance companies, you have risk experts, and they all need to. Um, yeah, they always find themselves in, in too much data and too much unstructured data. And so they, there is a lot of help actually there in the NLP space, but they aren't aware of that. And so to, to um, basically break this border between what is available in technology and, and what uh, business problems are there, uh, it was better, better to work for KPMG. Understood and appreciate that. So again, when you contrast, obviously, KPMG as a company, the stature, the size compared to Deep Neuron Lab. I know that obviously you can have the pros and cons of both areas with KPMG being such a big company. Um, did you, do you find any difficulty with regards to making movements quicker within the artificial intelligence NLP world within the, the sectors that, you're, that you work in? Um, so from from my perspective, I wouldn't think so because we are uh, quite uh, independent. If we need to solve any uh, any client issues, so as uh, we are a partner driven company, we we are a bit like small startups by ourselves. Of course, not if we need to do any kind of classical business process from our company. Yeah. So if we need budget, then that's not quite easy. Um, but but if we need, if we have a, a client problem, we are quite free to solve anything. And we have a huge internal community in there. So there's the KPMG Lighthouse, uh, which is around uh, 2000 pure data science specialists, uh, and but up to 50,000 technology experts. So also if we need a backend system, uh, a bigger server, if we need uh, a system for number crunching, if we need a website front end, anything like that, that you know, normally we always find this inside of our um, our KPMG community somewhere globally. Um, so mm -hmm. I think it's it's a good mixture of, of both worlds. But um, yeah, it, it's a bit more maybe the uh, what is so also to mention kind of, kind of the things which might be better uh, at startups. So the whole political issue. So kind of um, yeah, what what country is focusing on what which partner is focusing on which client so this is kind of the the aspects which are actually not directly problem solving but uh, yeah outside more in the in the business area yeah it could be more difficult and for those listening just to make sure i'm understood correctly you're based 
in Munich, but from our conversations, you also cover the Switzerland, Zurich area, if I'm correct. Or do you manage multiple departments within your area? Uh, no, I'm actually I'm originally from Munich, but I'm based in Switzerland and That's correct, work yeah. for for Swiss clients. So you just manage the Zurich area and Switzerland yes. alone. Okay, yeah. cool, brilliant. All right. Well, Yasem, when we were, we were catching up before, um, there was an important topic within your area for what you do within your business at DNL. So I just want to touch back on that again with regards to the importance of intelligent document processing and why it is crucial for enterprises. Yeah, for me, it was a surprise. Maybe there's a little intro to, to that question and the intelligent document processing um, that uh, one thinks, I think there is a misconception in, in the world that one thinks because we have gone through digitalization in a lot of areas, right? Um, that all the documents or the data is now in a structured way. And this is kind of a, an assumption that is a lot of times there, which is not the case. What I mean is a lot of companies now have their documents in a digital form, scans, PDFs, right? Have information like that more than ever before, and it's growing. But that doesn't mean that the data they have in there is available for usage immediately, right? Uh, and that is a big problem because what ends up happening in companies is that you have specialized people, and Johannes mentioned that also before, um, who specialize, for example, in accounting or are credit analysts who are doing are asked to do a very complex job, but before they actually can do their job of analyzing a company and assessing their, their credit risk, for example, they have to first get the data out of the PDF, out of the document, structure it, and then the actual work of the analysis can, can happen, right? And this is a mm -hmm. very, it's a, it, it is, first of all, it can be, it's a pretty repetitive task, or task, right? Or can be very repetitive. A certain parts of it can be repetitive um, and it can be tedious. And exactly these kind of processes is where machine learning and the current machine learning is actually getting really good at. Uh, it's maybe something to add there on is a lot of people think of AI as like a very intelligent, I don't know, program. We're not at that stage yet of a general AI um, problem solving, but we we're more on specific topics. Like a very good example I've found in other podcasts is describing it as if, a, if a, a machine learning algorithm nowadays can do what a student um, starting university or finishing school can do, basically. If you can describe a, a ch challenge or a task and give it to him, then a machine learning algorithm nowadays can do a similar kind of complexity of problem. And bringing mm -hmm. it back maybe to the intelligent document processing, that is why it's super important because we have resources in companies that are uh, very specialized in one task and they get to do that task not enough of their time basically and what, what intelligent document processing can enable us to do in the next years is actually take the, the tedious work away from them and give them more time to focus on the really hard cases and the really complex problems and free up basically work there and then allow out of the data to gain either more insights and support them even more but this is i think step two step one is actually to structure the data of these documents. Also, you know, on flipping it to you, Johannes, um, something that we talked about that was uh, quite important to you um, within KPMG and obviously what's relevant for your uh, your workplace, the AI explain explainability and, and governance, you know, regarding some of the fears of AI and why people, you know, some sometimes hold back in these areas because of the GDPR and stuff like that. Um, could you just go into a bit of detail about that and how it's impacted you. Mm -hmm. 
I think that's that's one of the major topics for this year currently. So the AI explainability. Um, I mean, it's not uh, it's not new, but I think that's the requests from clients. Uh, uh, have risen basically um, since one year um, is that they, they started now uh, exploring a bit of AI. Um, they, they started creating smaller machine learning models. Maybe they created uh, a risk model at a bank uh, or something which uh, solves something which they have originally done just by, uh, by, by a rule set or something like that. And now they want to bring this into production, but now that they are afraid that the regulators, um, uh, which they need to, to report everything, they can't explain anymore any decision. And, and then there's one one important law also now in GDPR that every automatic decision um, uh, which has been done needs to be explainable. And uh, every everyone in Europe has the uh, the right to request the explanation of an automatic decision. So basically, the, this makes it a bit difficult to just make a huge deep neural network which nobody can can explain anymore. And now, um, now the question comes back to us again as as a specialist in this area. So how can we make explainable AI basically or explain explainable natural language processing? So we have a model, but we don't know how it uh, how it did this decision. So how can we make uh, this decision afterwards explainable? So it's not just um, not just the, the fear of AI. It's basically just. Uh, we need to stick to regulations and to laws again and these laws luckily are uh, already also in place um also a bit from from what we talked to at least in the financial services industry they could be a bit more specific so this is also a request we, we created a study around that uh, in europe and the united states um, in this area uh, so um, the um, the risk officers uh, are still requesting a bit more stricter rules around ai what they really have to done uh, have uh, have have to do about that because originally if some expert makes a decision, normally maybe he also can't explain it so much, like how much now a machine would need to create an explainable uh, decision. But actually it's easier for a machine because this the famous gut feeling, which some old underwriting officer uh, at an insurance company has, um, he probably can't explain why he chooses two similar looking um, uh, clients differently or how, how he decides differently around that, but a machine should be always explainable. Relating that to you, Yasin, does that have any relevance with regards to the actions that you make within your business having to, to tackle this situation with regards to you know the governance and explaining it in order to get the process uh, accepted, should we say? Has has a very close relative to that, I would say, which, which is uh, the, the part of uncertainty where you need to explain, right? It, it's um, uh, it, it goes a bit with with the next topic that, that we discussed, Jordan, beforehand. So I would a bit combine them because yeah, go on. You have the problem of if you don't if you don't so you have models that are not perfect, right? Yeah. And if you have models that are not per perfect, you have to somehow explain or catch the cases where they're doing mistakes. This is the, the interesting part, right? And this is also a way of talking about explainability. But actually, maybe if, if you think about uncertainty of models, you can put it the way that, that in three ways, basically. The first way is you have a model that is that good that in 99% of the cases, it is co correct, right? or 99.999, and this 1% you can ignore, basically, which is the optimal case. Everybody wants to get to that case, but most of the time in real in real life problems, that doesn't happen. Most of the times yeah. you have an accuracy, which is a bit lower, and you have certain problems that 
you need to know about. And this is where explainability comes. So the customer says like, okay, your algorithm is, is good. It works 99.5%. What is the 0.5% it doesn't work in? And you're like, if you just stay there, then you're just like, I, I don't know. So the next thing that you can do, and that's actually something that we also do, is have the interaction between a human and the machine learning algorithm working together. So you have an algorithm making a suggestion and giving, for example, a score or giving here, look at this place, I'm not sure here, my uncertainty is not as high because of specific reasons. And then the human can correct the model, which is the second thing. And the third thing, which is even something we have found that helps even more, is to have domain-specific knowledge. So if you're talking about one specific problem and you know what exactly in that domain we can do to automate or do like automated checks, then you can help that to catch exceptions. Like to give you maybe an understandable example is if you're talking about extracting financial data that we are doing out of a balance sheet, you can extract the financial data and then calculate if the positions add up to, to the balance, right? And, and mm -hmm. if that happens, you have an automated check, which is very specific to that domain, but which with high certainty gives you then a mistake that the model has done. And this is something, in order to do that, you need to specialize. And that is, I think, something very interesting, which is very closely related to explainability, I would say, but has to do a lot with this topic of, I have a model, it's predicting something, and I need to control its output. I need to know if that is correct and how I can continue to work with that. And a lot of time people think of machine learning as a black box and I want to put something in it, come something out. But in production in environments where you need to control that more, you need to add more stuff around it to make it work. It makes a lot of sense. And as a business within Deep Neuron Lab, um, sort of touching on top of the topics that we wanted to discuss before, yeah, yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. what would you say are the biggest problems that you face today in, as, at Deep Neuron Labs? The biggest problems that we face, oof, there, there are a few, always challenges, <laughs> funding a company is, is a very humbling experience. So I could go on on, on various topics. <laughs> One is actually the fear of, of the, that we see also from companies of sharing the data. And this is something I think, yep. right, for the models and getting into the phase of training it. Uh, and this is obviously also a good thing because people should be, and I'm happy that I see that in Europe for sure, I can say that, that companies are very aware of the regulations and very careful with the data that is sensitive and not even more, not even has to be sensitive or personal data, but also like company data because they know that data is the value, right? But there is also, yeah, a bit of um, um, a fear there of how they can handle and work with the data and share it in order to create machine learning models. And this is definitely a challenge where have to work together with the client, have to have an open communication, open discussion in order to open them up also to like cloud service providers, which a lot of time on from infrastructure perspective are very like on the cutting edge. They, they support us startups, for example, for providing and solving like hard technical low level problems that we can build upon. And if we can bridge, for example, um, such connections, it's something that, that helps, I think, all startups for sure. But I think also companies, uh, Johannes, you can jump into that as KPMG. No, really, <laughs> uh, it's the same for us. So so the uh, data accessibility uh, is, a, is a challenge. So we are actually also focusing a bit more on 
uh, not directly start from scratch and say we need a cloud provider in that area. We normally try to make everything basically Docker-based and open source-based. So that's always our starting point and only for uh, yeah, specific tasks where we already know we need a, a cloud provider because they are way ahead. And that's mostly because they trained a model uh, um, which is perfect for that. So that's maybe as an example if you transcribe anything, then then you probably are. So if you have uh, audio data and you need it transcribed uh, to to make NLP afterwards out of it, um, you currently can't get around any cloud providers because they are they they train perfect models for that. Yeah, and maybe other issues we are also facing, maybe also as a teaser uh, for one of the other topics, which is I think our last topic for today, is uh, <laughs> uh, getting talented people uh, to to solve these problems because we we currently can't complain about uh, client requests and and problems to solve there or actually or creating new uh, NLP solutions there. But yeah, we need to find NLP specialists. And the interesting thing is, uh, I mean, everybody's looking for data scientists, but especially NLP specialists are really seldom because it's really different uh, uh, how you train a, a a machine learning model on uh, structured data than on unstructured data because the pre-processing and extracting all this information and working with pipelines it's always uh, yeah completely new and there are also not so much universities which have this in the classical data science program it's always kind of an an add-on course or there are these uh, a few of these comput computational linguists which we are really, really looking for <laughs> appreciate that Johannes and just touching on what you were just saying, it made me think for a second with regards to what your recruiting strategy is. And we've touched on this a few times in our prior conversations. But I'm curious to know when you go out to the market to look for uh, the next hire, should we say, let's touching on, you know, for an NLP specialist specifically, do you look ideally for someone that is a, a senior NLP specialist or do you think it's more advisable to say let's hire a more general generalized artificial intelligence specialist from um just out of university let's say what would be the, the protocol um oh it really depends on on what um maybe on on what specialty i'm looking currently for 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 a specific project but i would say they are so maybe it's connected to to uh to the skill sets of of data scientists uh, and also nlp specialists in that area i always think that they're basically for a good data scientist uh, they have skills in in uh, three overlapping bubbles but they're always different different in size so you have good software engineers because you need to create a solution um, you need to have a bit of a, a research experience, uh, maybe maybe not even experience, you just need to have a bit of a research drive. So you need to be explorative and, and look outside of, of your own company and, and what has been done. And maybe you, you need to write, uh, read papers and, and see if you can create code out of that. But then there, there's another domain which could be also quite strong. And normally these people you don't find at the university, um, you maybe need a domain expert. So uh, at IBM, I got uh, great contact to to new data scientists which are which didn't came out of the university they came from hospitals but because mm -hmm. they could read these difficult um, medical language which was basically a mixture of English German and Latin <laughs> so no machine could read that <laughs> at that time and so um, yeah and and it's always different so you have these these um, 
these experienced specialists which haven't touched software engineering and or and research is a long time ago or maybe you have uh, students which, which have done a bit of research and have basic understanding in, in software engineering or you have uh, also inside of the company you have great software engineers or, or data specialists which 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 also then maybe know from their company the data but don't have any research experience. So, so I think you always need to increase one of these these skills in the bubbles and then you can get a, a, a good data scientist from all, uh, from all angles, basically. Yeah, and I appreciate that. I think that's something that we were touching on before, which was probably the biggest pain point for, for both of you, actually. Um, I think, Yasin, you brought this up last time saying, you know, the hiring of uh, machine learning engineers and data scientists, the biggest challenge that well, one of the biggest challenges that you face is finding someone with a scientific background and a software engineering background combined. It's either one or the other. So it'd be good to touch on that and why you think that is the case and uh, how hard is it really to find someone with both? And have you ever found someone with both? <laughs> yes, <laughs> but, but, but maybe the first on the why, which is interesting. Uh, I think it is because the field is relatively young and new, right? So you have uh, two yeah. things. The field is relatively young. Universities are just catching up, even slow, I would say. But yes, they are catching up. Uh, and secondly, is because the technology is now getting like standardized. Uh, Johannes touched upon it with open source projects that, that help and are like standardized and give you like an easier access to the to the cutting edge technologies that are there and get like more standardized, more people can use them. So that is coming. But at the moment, we have like this um, inconsistency of a lot of junior data scientists or people interested in the data science world and the machine learning world coming in. And then you have a few seniors with like more expertise and they're either on the very much research side and they're missing the mm -hmm. software development, I would agree on that, or they are very much coming from the software development side and now getting into machine learning, but then haven't touched NLP at all. And then working with text is really, uh, I can just confirm that, is really different than working with other machine learning models. Or you can come from the linguistic side, for example, and being very like good with the text itself. But then again, software development is most of the time something that is lacking and is like far away and seems very technological and, and, and keeps them away from actually developing um, stuff. So I would, I can definitely just agree on that, that it's hard to find. Nevertheless, um, it's a bit that you need a balance inside the team. You don't need to find one to, to do it all because even he has mm -hmm. like certain amount of hours in the day, but you need to have like people that can communicate well, first of all. So even if they have knowledge, they can get it from one brain to the next. And then inside the team, you need to create specific skill sets, right? The one thing that we have found actually that helps a lot is though if, if a person has touched once in a hobby project or once in a in a uh, professional even better obviously i'm just suggesting that as a hobby because most of the times we as recruiters say we need the experience and a lot of times i can understand somebody listening and saying like hey i i if you don't give me the chance i never have the experience right <laughs> i can understand that but experience doesn't have to come from a professional project if you work on something from beginning to end you automatically need to touch a lot of the stuff that we are mentioning meaning you will need to touch all the software development from beginning to end with deployment, with making something run. You will need to think about the model from beginning to the end. And this will at least give you the understanding to communicate better with the other people in the team. And that is something we found, like, have found that is very important to look out for, that everybody, at least somebody has 
worn all the shoes, and then if he specializes in one area that that we actually are looking for, perfect. Excellent. And so that does that make it valid in the sense that let's say if someone applied to Deep Neuron Lab and they didn't necessarily have production experience, but they had solid research experience, experience, but they had started something from start to finish and they wanted to join a company where they can finally get that production experience, would you still give that person the equal time of day or would you feel like, ah, oh, you haven't got the production experience, so I don't know if you could be important to us at this moment in time? Definitely. Definitely we would give them a chance. Uh, what Just what a thing that we have found in in the recruitment process that has helped us on, on our side, like def define or like say, okay, let's continue more in this direction is when we see that somebody has done a project from beginning to end, right? If you can bring like a hobby project with them where they can showcase, I had this problem in mind, I built this algorithm and it's running on this API. Look at it, right? And then you can go through with the person through the code. That is a very strong sign of having the skill set and like how he approached the problem. If yeah. you just have worked in one notebook and just have done one Andrew N uh, course, not like it's a super course, for example, and I'm not discrediting it at all. I, I love it. But on the other hand, just having done a course and having listened to the theory of things or having listened to, to how a model works is very different from having applied it. This is basically what I'm trying to say. That to me says that you like someone that, they don't necessarily have to have had real life work experience yet in production, but someone with the right attitude, perhaps an entrepreneurial spirit as well to work on something by themselves and prove and showcase what they can do. And of course, if they're doing something uh, by themselves on their own accord, it shows their passion in that area as well. And I often yeah. find with clients that many of them do choose someone over someone that's got lots of experience, but that should we say have been stuck in one sector and stuck with one type of mindset, perhaps a bit of an ego as well as if they know everything. Um, and often the client will go for this person that's a little bit less experienced, a bit cheaper as well, but his attitude is much more important for the business long-term. Is that something that relates with you? Mm, yes, ab ab absolutely. I, I can relate to that. I like mm -hmm. uh, a lot of times, and let's not only talk about the technical side, right? As, as I mentioned that before, because I think it's a very important part. You cannot mention it enough. Is the communication side of things, right? So, uh, like, like having a structured way of of how tackling a project. It might sound a bit abstract, but if you like talk about somebody, what decisions he made in that project professionally or, or, or personally, and he can explain that and bring that over to the next and understands his audience. So who mm -hmm. is he speaking to? Is he speaking to somebody who is a software developer, need a different kind of language than if you're talking to the product person, right? And, and being able to have that communication skill is, is super important as well. And there definitely, if you have somebody who is very strong in that, has done a hobby project, and you have somebody who has done research and has a doctorate in, in an NLP topic for five years, doesn't mean he would win over somebody junior, very strong, and having done a great project per, personally. Yeah, I'd have to agree with that. I think you know the most important skill that anybody should have in life, regardless whether it's an NLP position or anything like that, is communication. If you can have excellent communication skills, it doesn't mean you have to be an extrovert. You could be either, but as long as you can uh, collaborate with um, your managers or your colleagues or the co-founders of a business really, really well, then if you work all in cohesion together, then the business should do really, really well as a whole. 
and that comes yeah. from the individual initially. Um, that's also sort of touching on to your hiring process, Johannes. I know that we we discussed this before that initially you were look, looking for a, a sort of mid to senior type profile. We had a few challenges there. And now you've sort of re-strategized on how you want to approach that. And now you're looking for a number of students or, or straight out to university, is that correct? Exactly, exactly. So we are currently looking for graduates there, um, uh, especially so uh, especially in the in the data science area, um, just to bring um, yeah people directly which still have these these research yeah interest there and and which are still up for learning and everything. So so this works quite well. And and I also just can can add to that what what Jason said. Um, what we are currently looking for, by, for example, screening in the CVs, I, first thing I, I look for the GitHub uh, link. If, if they have a GitHub link, that's a big plus. <laughs> um, and, and then we have another person uh, which had a, uh, actually already had a PhD, so um, which, which looked good, good research interest. But uh, yeah, of course, I could have a look into his, uh, his paperwork and, and what he has published and everything. Then it was just too theoretically. So it was, for me, it was not clear if he has really can bring his these whole concepts to um, yeah to to a productive system. I mean, not, no, he doesn't need to really have a, a productive experience. That that's true, um, especially because you normally um, as also the also the the data science and data engineering teams at the at our clients are, are growing, and especially the engineering side on the uh, at the clients. Uh, and the client side is growing so uh, and, and they get also way more pref- professionalized so they have platforms which uh, take care about model um, uh, deployment and, and also logging and, and all the stuff classical software engineering um, has since 20-30 years um, it actually gets a, a bit easier to bring also a Jupyter notebook or a, a script to production but still, you need to have done this in a, in a proper language and, and just kind of um, creating um, algorithms uh, on just on a formula based without uh, uh, bringing into a machine and, and let it uh, uh, test it out and have a really uh, kind of experience with, with the data. Uh, but you have a PhD that doesn't bring you uh, uh, farther than than a student which is just interested in the topic and and which goes into the code and uh, creates really a, a system. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that, Johannes. And I know that um, obviously, as you mentioned at the beginning of this uh, podcast, that you are based in the, the Zurich area, covering the Switzerland area. Now, I do mo- mainly focus heavily within Germany, but I cover the DAC region as a whole. But I know, you know, when you look at the likes of Berlin and Munich, that's probably the, the, the biggest area where the, the number of IT specialists are, especially Berlin and, and Munich, the hubs. Is it that much more difficult for you when trying to hire someone in, in Switzerland? Because I know for, for sure that there's a lot, lot less people when trying to headhunt someone. Yeah, it's true. I'm I, uh, I'm quite surprised actually that uh, because the uh, Switzerland has really good universities in uh, also especially in the um, uh, in the science area like the famous uh, ETH in in Zurich. Um, but still, it's not enough for if you compare how much how much companies are there in Zurich. So you have uh, uh, Google has a huge uh, research lab there. Microsoft has a huge research lab there. IBM has a huge research lab there. And if you come out from the university like me, 
company, you look for the technology companies and you first go there. So we as KPMG, we are maybe not so interesting for for technology interested people from the university because we are just the consultants. But here, here I am <laughs> as a data scientist and uh, we are doing code and we are doing real real life systems and we also need these people. So we are we are definitely also looking in uh, Germany and we are happy if people want to move to Switzerland. They pay good um, uh, to <laughs> to basically fulfill this demand there, and then also I would uh, I would add there's from the university side uh, I would say there is uh, not only Munich and, and Berlin there's also a, a really famous Heidelberg um, uh, for their computational linguistic Absolutely. part and Tübingen. Yeah, I asked this question to Janssen at the beginning of the call uh, with regards to the whole working remotely and the adaptation to that. How has that been at KPMG being such a large company? Have they gone with the flow on that or has it been a bit of a no-go zone? No, uh, we we are also um, are um, still in uh, home office preferred mode and we were in a, a home office only mode um, from um, yeah, basically just from the beginning of this year, uh, because but this is more as Switzerland reacted a bit slower uh, compared now to Germany. So yeah. they had uh, just started their uh, second lockdown in February, and and so also KPMG uh, went with that way. But also uh, all the teams are working differently there, so it, it's really dependent on how is your client doing? Do they have a home office policy? Um, uh, and how you are working inside a team if you work with uh, still with uh, analog data which are not so many teams um, still luckily um, uh, but there it's 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 really dependent there um, so it's not that that all people are in the home office um, but most of the people are working from there and we are I mean we have a big infrastructure so everything was already ready and home office mm. ready from the beginning on maybe not really home office ready but we we need to always can work uh, on client side and so if you just bring this to your home office then then it's fine yeah and for both of you um you know from the, the contrast between what it what life was like before covid hit and, and now how have you have you found the option to work home from home completely or hybrid um do you, have you found it actually better or no difference or worse Maybe I can can start. Yeah, so yeah. Um, the uh, I would say the hybrid mode is probably the for me personally also from how, from how I like to work uh, uh, the best mode. So I like the days when I'm at home and I can uh, solve a problem where I can code and where I really can concentrate and don't have uh, any interruption, at least only planned interruptions like meetings. Um, so this is a bit more focused. I like that way, but. Other things like uh, I still love the client interaction. I'm really looking forward when we can finally also have the. Uh, we work a lot with design thinking workshops, uh, especially in the beginning. Um, I'm really looking forward to that because that's really struggling. So I'm. I didn't go really fun on uh, virtual design thinking workshops, for example. Um, I mean, if there is no other way, then then this can work. But still, uh, you need way more preparation for that. May way more work after it. And um, yeah, and you still can't can't do it that long. It's it's really stressful to have these these creative workshops virtually with a lot of people in the room, which maybe don't know each other uh, well. So so this is this is difficulty. Um, yeah. And for you, Yasin. So 
for us, it was a bit of an adjustment in the beginning because in, in a startup, you're a very, very dynamic environment. You talk a lot, right? A lot of information that gets passed day by day. And this, we had to structure a bit more when we went into the home, home office mode, right? Uh, because then information wasn't flowing. Like when you go to a coffee and you're like, hey, this happened, the client told me ABC, and now we could work on this, but this you need to structure more. So we had to get even like a bit more communication ways that are planned where beforehand you can just go with the flow and be more on uh, hands-on when it happens. That was one thing that, that, that happened. The other thing though that helped us, it was in recruiting actually also, that we recruited in this time a lot more people also from abroad, right? So I'm actually looking at what we talked before about the challenges of hiring. One thing that we have on top of the, the, the hard problem of hiring the right person when it comes to like tech and NLP is to also like keep a diversity, which was very important to us as a team, even as a young company, I think something like that, you have to start from the day one and not when you get to 100 people saying, now I want to be diverse. That's, that's not how it works. So you need to start from the beginning. And having that in mind just adds like one level of complexity and hard thing on it. So I, I, I'm really happy to say like that we're now 10 nationalities and like 12, 13 people. So as diverse as you can get. And that was something that actually also was triggered a bit by the COVID situation and having like interviewers from all over the world, but again, interested also in Berlin, as you mentioned, this obviously something attracts. It's the weather here. That's perfect. <laughs> that's why everybody wants to come. No, <laughs> j j joking aside, uh, Berlin helps definitely as a location where the people want to come, but that was something that came out of it. And the communication, as I said, like having it more structured. So you need, if you want to talk about something and share with the company the status, where we're at, what happens, then you need to set it up and organize it more than you did before. Um, I think diversity is key as well, especially in such a, a niche area, natural language processing. When I am doing my recruiting, I call it a niche within a niche, you know, focusing on AI recruitment in the whole of IT is niche in itself. And then to do NLP specifically, is is very niche so to to be diverse in having you know just english speaking as the most important language to speak not, not necessarily german um has been a crucial game changer for a lot of my clients i know that um i've been doing the german market for, for six seven years now and uh, a lot of my clients in the early days were like must be german fluent or must be at least b1 b2 german and uh Whilst we, you know, we still still did find people, but it, it it stopped them from hiring a lot of great talent purely just down to the language barrier. So since that's been a, a huge change, a lot of clients now accept just English fluent, and it's been extremely fruitful fruitful for a lot of clients. Yourself, Johanna, said KPMG. Is that something that you guys still stick to traditionally? It has to be German fluent or German advanced, or is there a, a flexibility on that now? Um, no, we are. So KPMG in general hires uh, um, English fluent, so so that's fine. Okay. Um, so, but from from our data perspective, for for NLP, unfortunately, specifically, we are still looking for German fluent uh because of the data we are looking into so that's as we are focused on the swiss market there are of course a lot of international uh, clients but we still have a lot of problems with uh, german document data there so um uh, currently we have focus on uh, people which are also fluent in german for okay. at least for the nlp roles but that's, that's really kind of the specific so if he's a data engineer or focusing on deep learning and machine learning engineering, then that's not a problem. But for unfortunately, especially NLP, there is still the, the language barrier there. 
Cool, cool. And um, just coming on to our sort of last topic, just I want to bring up a, a story that I had quite recently, and I hope you guys can elaborate or, or help me with it. So do you think that it's easy to define exactly what you're looking for before you've actually hired that person? And what I mean by that, an example I have with a client in the, the North Rhine-Westphalia region, um, they wanted an NLP specialist um, and brought them exactly that. Um, you know, of course, they gave me the criteria of the specifics that, that person should have. And when I introduced them, um, the interview went very differently compared to what, what was what was explained to me. And what I mean by that is he went in there with, you know, a PhD in natural language processing, very educated, both on the research and the production side um, in his workplace. But when he had the interview, he came out and said, I was presented with a coding test. Um, it was not what was what was explained or told and wasn't really explained to me as well. So I was confused as to why he was set a coding test for the NLP type position that he was in. And it made me think, does, does a client always truly know what they're looking for? I would say this is something, for example, we do also in the first interview, even if yeah. we look for an NLP role, just to just back that up, also do a coding challenge and look at the code style of somebody. Because mm -hmm. even if you are an NLP engineer or a machine learning engineer, um, in the end, you are working with code and code is your documentation is what you are going to read. Or if, if we work together and you write something, and I have to work the next day with it. The code is going to be our language that we're going to communicate with. So code style and doing a code challenge, not on a software development level that it has to be for production, but looking at this skill shows like how much a person has collaborated on code with somebody else. And, and there, I think, at least we find it very helpful to have a very high standard when it comes to code style and how somebody codes, because it's the language mm -hmm. that we developers, and that goes from software to data science, communicate in. And if we have a good skill of that language, it's the same way that we talk English. Uh, when you talk about code, it's the same way. So it's necessary, in my opinion, in all of the roles to check that. And if somebody has an extreme skill in somebody else, he can compensate for that. But it's definitely an important factor. You sh we always need to take into consideration whatever the role, uh, the when it comes to coding, right? If it's on a different domain, when it comes to like, pro uh, I don't know, product, maybe we can see it differently. But I think on that, um, coding is always a part of it. Mm -hmm. And is that why that both of you said the, the rock star candidate, should we say, is someone that has a bit of both that scientific background and the software engineering background. So um, I would say the, the software engineering background is is definitely a key. Uh, um, and so if you don't have any coding skills, uh, it wouldn't work. But I wouldn't go that far that... So we, for example, currently do no, not any uh, coding challenges, but um, mm -hmm. because I'm not sure if, if that's because normally they are a bit timed. Sometimes I also saw coding challenges on uh, on paperwork and, and stuff like that. So um, that's that's a bit weird and not kind of how they then uh, in, in future uh, they would work. Um, so 
we normally don't do that, but um, again, so that's the reason why we look for GitHub or we ask basically then more in the interview questions like uh, if they, uh, what kind of projects they have done uh, in the past and how uh, uh, they worked there, or even if they contributed to open source, which would be then more maybe uh, for a, a senior role where you can really see if they also worked in a, in a bigger community and and, um, uh, and stuff like that, yeah. Excellent. Um and for the audience that will be listening, um, there are a few important skills that they should probably take with them with regards to being, you know, working for a potential employee. I know we touched on this last time. So to answer this for, for both of you, um, what skills are important and what potential employees should pay attention to? So we've touched on a couple already. We said one of the biggest ones was communication. Um, having good communication will will put you in front in front of a lot of people. What other skills would you say are really important? I can start. Um, so one maybe also just to, to then finally finish the software engineering part. So software patterns is something we are uh, always a bit. But, but I'm what, what would be great, but you normally don't see that so much that, that people are uh, currently looking into. Uh, just if you have these candidates which are basically coming from soft engineering so that they are familiar with with uh, um, yeah classical so, um, software patterns uh, then of course the um, a st structured way of problem solving um, interestingly then there we have again the PhD candidates they normally really know that because they need to uh, solve a problem in a really structured way over a couple of years so they mm -hmm. have normally perfect skills uh, in that area and if you want to touch a bit more into uh, in the consulting side uh, then uh, this is really key uh, and then the uh, then also what, what's really important to kind of changing to be able to change the point of view to be uh, on uh, on the user side and to see what kind of problem they could have in their daily work in in what they are struggling with and, and how uh, then again adapt this to what then switch back the view to how we how a technology driven person can help them and what could what code system software can can help them yeah, brilliant. So good decision making and, and and being able to to make that call is a good skill to have as well. Would you add any other skills to that, Yasin? Yeah, we'll just emphasize a bit again the code style side of things, right? So how yeah. you code and there maybe even uh, just best practices, right? So using Git, like basic stuff, which might seem basic, but the software development has been grown and there are so many good best practices that we have there as tools, which is just good to feed on and look at them and try them out. And, and there is a reason why they have been uh, grown so strong. And I think the the NLP and the machine learning world is just getting there slowly. And we can just borrow a lot from that, from that world of, of software engineering. So I think it's a great, uh, great thing. And the second part would be also on the cutting edge of machine learning that I would add. I agree with everything that Johannes said, first of all, but the cutting, like some of the cutting edge machine learning algorithms, try them out. Like there are problems when you try them out that you haven't faced before. And a lot of, Applicants might have only worked with a decision tree, for example, but have never like gone and tr tried out a question answering and how mm -hmm. what you need to implement it and the pre-processing steps that need to be done there. So I would say this is definitely also something like having implemented it once because you see problems that you haven't seen before um, that I would add. And I would just 
emphasize again one thing that is very important for us in the recruitment process is also which is in the field of communication right i'm just pointing it out because i think it helps understanding what we what what i would mean is if the person on the other side understands where he misses information and asks about it so if there's an information gap if the other side forces to fill that gap up right Maybe yeah. I, I don't have his context. Or when we're talking now, you, Jordan, might not have our context and don't know what we mean. But if you ask, then we can like f- fill up this information and we can be on the same level of communication. And this is a very important skill. So don't be afraid of asking. And if somebody's annoyed by your questions, then they probably have a problem. But the, really, this is really like, I'm very happy to see in an interview that somebody asks like, why do we do this in the company? Why is that done? Uh, right. If, if the other was afraid to answer, then they have a problem, but you should be able to fill up your information. And we have found that this works very good. And usually the applicants that are also like ask this information are the ones that are also more push for it also in the work for, for clearing up misunderstandings afterwards. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is definitely something I would just encourage everybody to do and not be afraid to ask them. Yeah. Okay. So, so adding to what Johanna said then, so some, some good problem solving best practices, as you mentioned, and um, the other one, oh yeah, the good style of uh, the way you code, code. very yes. important. Okay, brilliant. Well, uh, I think we're sort of coming to an end here. And uh, I just want to say to both you guys, Johannes and Yarsen, I really appreciate um, both of your time. And for those that are listening, if anyone wants to reach out to any of you and ask you any questions and what we've talked about and stuff like that, what would be the best way to contact you? Start with you, Johannes. Uh, LinkedIn is perfect. Yeah. I'm good available there. Yes. Nice and easy. And yourself, Yasin? Same. LinkedIn, our Same, yeah. website, whatever, or whatever is, is easier. But yeah. Yeah. I think that's a source for everyone, isn't it? <laughs> it's, it is. it's massive now. Excellent. Well, uh, I really want to say again, I thank you so much for uh, for coming onto the podcast. It's the first episode. And I want to thank you, everyone, for listening. This was the NLP Zone podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Luxford. And today's guests were Yarsen Georgiakopoulos and Johannes Forster. Thank you so much for being on the show. Take care, guys. Hey, thanks for having us.